The following is a message of First Baptist Richardson. For more information, please visit fbcr.org. Good morning. Don't you wish that guy preaching would quit bringing such long verses for you to read? I mean, that's just unreasonable. Good job, everybody. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. My name is Ryan Musser. I'm just a member here at the church. I was a minister for many, many years in churches across Texas, and I want to welcome you this morning. I have the privilege of bringing God's Word today, and we are so excited that you are here with us. If you are worshiping online with us, we are excited you are with us as well in spirit. We have been talking about a series called After Easter. After Easter is a look at these little stories that tend to take place with Jesus and the Holy Spirit across this time period after the resurrection. And it starts off with Jesus changing the lives of just a few people. And then those few people go out and they find somebody and they change their lives too. And it just keeps going and going. And we've been looking at those stories that started off in the gospel and have moved through the book of Acts. And today we're in Acts chapter 9 and verse 1 and it goes like this. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he was going along, approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight, And neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He answered, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and the house of Judas. And look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. And at this moment he is praying and he has seen a vision. A man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is an instrument I have chosen to bring my name before the Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house, and he laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the way here, he sent me to you so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength 
For several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem among those who invoked his name? And has he not come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? Saul became increasingly more powerful and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. As I said before the passage, we've been in this After Easter series. And as we've been in the book of Acts, I don't know if you've noticed, but we keep moving from those people who would seem likely to follow Jesus to less and less likely people. And what's been a little weirder than that is that the less and less likely people seem to be becoming leaders in the early church, and they reach out to even less and less likely people. It, it started with a, a Jewish man, Peter, who is forgiven, and when he starts preaching on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes down, he's preaching to largely Jews, and they accept Jesus, and that kind of fits. It kind of goes with everything we've seen in the Gospels, and we kind of get along with that okay. And then that same Jewish man, Peter, goes, and there's another Jewish man who's on the side of the road and can't walk and can't move, can't get into the temple, probably wouldn't have been allowed in, and it's a little strange, but he does what Jesus did, and he helps him stand and walk, and that man is able to go in and be a part of the worship. But from there, it gets a little stranger because Stephen starts preaching and gets persecuted and gets killed, and we heard that earlier. And then the church gets spread out. And all of a sudden, there's a deacon named Philip. Uh, And there are deacons in the room that are really concerned right now that one day that someone up here is just going to say, it's your turn to preach, come on up. But there's a deacon named Philip who doesn't shy away from that, just like Stephen didn't. And because he's kind of been kicked out of Jerusalem because of this whole persecution, he's in a place where the Jews wouldn't have wanted to be. He's in Samaria. And while the Samaritans and the Jews don't get along, they do have a common history and they worship the same God and they have some of the same language. So while it's odd when he starts preaching there that they start receiving the gospel, it may be a little less odd than some others. At least they have a common background. And they receive the gospel and Philip keeps going because then God tells him, hey, there's a road in the middle of nowhere. Go out there. And he preaches to an Ethiopian eunuch, someone who would never be allowed as a part of God's people of Israel. And that guy gets baptized and starts following Jesus and takes the gospel with him as he rides back at light speed back to Ethiopia. Stranger and stranger and stranger, more and more inclusive, more and more unlikely people being allowed in and allowing in more and more unlikely people. Here we have a story about a guy named Saul. Saul had gone through a lot of school students. He came from a good area, Tarsus, which rivaled Alexandria and Athens for influence in his day, but he didn't go to school there. Like some of you who are going off to College Station and Austin and all kinds of other places, Saul left home and he went to school in Jerusalem. And he studied under the very best. He studied under a guy named Gamaliel. Think Oxford, Harvard, Stanford. That's who this guy is. And Paul got a 
top-notch theological education. He also has another job where he can make tents. So Paul's got a little bit of a bivocational thing going on there, but Paul is well-trained, he's young, and he is moving up in the Jewish community, has his whole future ahead of him. He's there when this whole Stephen thing we read about goes on. Paul approves of what the Sanhedrin is doing. He approves of the persecution. And, and Paul is well-trained and he's read through the Torah, the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That is literally a law book for them. And as he's read through it, he has decided that these followers of Jesus have to be purged. And so he takes it upon himself, very zealous for God, to start going in and breaking into houses and arresting those in Jerusalem who call themselves followers of the way. And in this passage, it says, and with murderous threats still on his breath. It's talking about the fact that there's some legal consequences that he's threatening to bring. Some people may just be warned, but others are being arrested. With murderous threats against the believers, he's doing a new thing here. He's gone to the Sanhedrin for letters to take out of Jerusalem. Now, I am currently a lawyer, and so give me a second to talk about some legal stuff here. These are letters of extradition. See, the Sanhedrin was at one point in time an actual political and governmental body in the area. And Rome was okay with that for a while, but the Jews got kind of rowdy. And so Rome said, look, no, we're going to put some other people in charge. But the Sanhedrin is still going to be in charge. The high priests are still going to be in charge of internal Jewish matters. You have legal authority over violations of your law. And so... Paul goes and says, this is a violation of our law. And just because they fled from Jerusalem doesn't mean they get to be free. We will hunt down criminals wherever they go. I want letters of extradition. Letters of extradition allow you to go into another country. The United States has this with many countries. The United States can go and say, look, in Canada, that guy that's under arrest, we want him brought back to our country. He needs to pay for crimes here, and that's what they do. And so Paul is taking these letters of extradition out, and he's leaving the Judean region, leaving the area where the Sanhedrin rules, and he's going out into Damascus, into a different kingdom. And he's going to bring back those people who followed Jesus. The persecution at this time was probably not largely against those who were born Jews. There's kind of a racial element going on here. Paul and the people seem to be really offended that there are people who weren't born Jews who came into Judaism and now believe that this Jewish man, Jesus, really was the Messiah. And these people have fled Jerusalem and Paul is going to get them. He's looking to take prisoners back. So please don't think he's walking with one or two friends. He has a gang of people with him so they can take people back in chains. People have been beaten. People have been killed. People have been imprisoned. He's looking to take them back. He's taking the religious authority of those Jewish leaders in Jerusalem out into the Roman world. Persecution that started in Jerusalem is chasing the gospel on its heels as it moves out. Saul is a messenger, an apostle of the anti-gospel. Bad news for the followers. Saul sees himself probably as a bounty hunter who says, this is the way. 
And yet, really, Paul's acting like an antichrist figure, preaching and proclaiming captivity and hopelessness using the strength and power of the Sanhedrin. Actually, what Paul is to the early church and to the believers who live there is nothing more than a terrorist operating a terrorist cell, wreaking havoc on lives and destroying them everywhere he goes. If Philip and the other deacons had a job to take care of the orphans and the widows, then Paul is making sure they have plenty of customers. Saul is headed down toward Damascus. And forgive me if I call him Paul and Saul. He gets his name changed later on. Same guy. This guy is headed down to Damascus full of passion for God with a mission bound to make more orphans and widows. And as he is on his way, there's a bright shining light and a sound and he falls on his knees. Now, he hears a voice And in his day, it was very clear that if you start hearing a voice that no one else is saying, that's God talking to you. And there are two reasons that that might happen. Number one is to give you instructions about what you're supposed to do, a mission for God, something like that. And number two is to be rebuked. And the words of this one who is zealous for God, the words to him start off, Saul... Saul, why are you persecuting me? He had to be really confused. I mean, really confused. He had studied with the best teachers and he decided that these people were wrong and there's a long history of people getting on a religious tirade and beating down other people and wouldn't that make God happy? He's very confused and so He was going out to bring truth and right things and to enforce the law and stand up for God's word. And all of a sudden he gets knocked to the ground and this voice calls out and it it has to be God, but how could it possibly be God? I'm doing this for you. So can you please identify yourself? Who are you? And the voice makes it clear. The voice that can only be God says, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Paul gets rebuked. Saul gets knocked down right there. He gets told that the way he's been going isn't right. Despite all of his plans and education, it hasn't helped him in this particular moment. He made some really awful choices. And he's been told now to go into a city and await the instructions, the other thing the voice might give. And then silence. Silence can be really uncomfortable. Anyone ever got in trouble with their parents and had them sit there and just stare at them for a while? I've had that a few times in my life. For Saul, it's a moment of silence. It says that no one else wants to say anything. But for Saul, it's far, far worse. Because in addition to it being silent, Saul has now realized that as the light is gone, all light is gone. He can no longer see. 
the others heard, it may say in your scripture, a voice, but what it actually probably means there is they heard a sound. And in other places when they're referencing this story, they heard the sound, but they didn't necessarily hear the words. Only Paul got the instructions. And so they're a little confused as the person they were following, their leader, has fallen to the ground, is now blind, and is telling them that they need to take him to Damascus, and he's supposed to wait there. And so it says they did. They led him by the hand into the house that was friendly to this particular terrorist cell. And there he had to wait. Have a lot of compassion for this jerk in this story because at one point in time in law school, um, I actually temporarily went blind in one of my eyes. It was a weird day. I I went to play racquetball with a buddy. He was having a, a hard day. He broke up with his girlfriend and just was having a rough time. We thought we'll go blow off some steam. It's what guys do instead of talk sometimes. So we went and we were just going to hit this ball really hard. And he was a tennis player and I should have taken that into account. I didn't do that. I grabbed the racket, grabbed the ball, saw the goggles, didn't grab those. Went into the racquetball court. I was doing quite well and he was getting angrier and angrier. And he hit the ball so hard that Um, I'm not sure what would have happened to the ball had it hit the wall. Thankfully, my face was right there to catch it. Just this occipital socket, not the bone around it, just the eye. And I hit the ground. As I got up, I couldn't see anything on this side. It was a strange experience. I remember doing something that just seems cliche and dumb. I grabbed my hand and I put it in front of my face. Like a John Cena move. You can't see me. I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. It was actually that thing happening. And believe it or not, I kept doing that for about 10 minutes before it occurred to me that this may not be going away. I asked my wife to come pick me up. I'm standing on a street corner outside SMU, not really able to see traffic. This was a bad situation. Um, Sweaty because I didn't hop in the shower and everything else, just nasty looking, and just standing there, and people are going around me because I'm just waving my hand in front of my face, waiting to see something. I get to the doctor, and they say, look, Mr. Musser, uh, this is a big deal. By that time, I was able to see a little bit. I was still legally blind. I could tell on the chart that there was a chart. You know that vision chart? I could tell there was a chart. That was an improvement. There was some chart or something on the wall. I just couldn't see anything on it. He said, you need to go home and you need to lie down. And your wife needs to be very careful driving you home because even a sudden stop in the car, the pressure is so high in your eye, you could, you could lose your vision for anything right now. Just, you need to go home and you need to lay down. I was in law school and finals were in about two weeks. This is not the time to go home and lay down. He said, "Uh, no, you don't understand. If you try to read, that could make you go blind. You can't look at anything. You can't watch anything. I need you to go home. I need you to turn off the lights. I need you to lay in bed. And I need you to not move for the next four or five days. I don't know if you've ever spent a long time in the darkness by yourself. I don't know 
how much time you've spent alone, not doing anything else, alone just with your thoughts. But that is a scary place. Sitting in the darkness can lead to a lot of despair. I recall thinking about the fact that I had finals coming up and I couldn't read, but then that seemed like a small problem because, wait a minute, what if this is permanent? Because he said it might be. He said it's very likely I won't get all my vision back. What, what if I can't be a lawyer? Whoa, 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 whoa. What if I can't preach anymore? Wait, wait, wait. What if, what if from now on when I look at my wife, I can't see her clearly? Wait, we're going to have children. Wait, what if I can't ever throw a ball with my kids? Just a number of things started going through my mind. What had I done by making that simple mistake, just not putting on those glasses? What led me to this moment? And I kept thinking about this story and this guy. Saul sitting in a very dark place. Literally and figuratively. He's blind and he's praying to God and he's not eating and he's not drinking. He's fasting and he has a lot of time on his hands. I can imagine he's asking for forgiveness. Sitting there thinking about how wrong he had been. Thinking about Stephen who had been right after all. And about how he was dead. Thinking about all the lives he destroyed, all the orphans and widows that had been created. Thinking about all the times now he had blasphemed God because if Jesus is God, he certainly had. Thinking about what he was going to do for a living. They didn't have any kind of security system. Is he going to be the guy who's sitting outside the temple begging next week? He is literally in a dark place seeing no light at all. And like the first disciples, he's going to spend three days in that dark place wondering how the story ends. There's a guy named Ananias. Ananias is a Jewish man well respected in the community who lives in Damascus. Ananias, three days later, is sitting there when God has a vision for him. And unlike the one for Saul, it's not starting with rebuke. Here come the instructions. He tells Ananias, go lay hands on Saul and heal him. Ananias would like to have a conversation with God about this particular task he's been given. I'm sorry. I have no problem going and praying for someone. I don't even mind laying my hands on somebody. That's fine. And if you want to use me, Lord, here I am. Send me. But to whom shall I go? I know that you're supposed to be all-knowing, but... Have you lost your divine mind? Do you understand who this is? Maybe you, is there another Saul I'm not aware of? Saul of Tarsus? I know this guy. Ananias has heard of Saul. And far from being on the church's recruiting list, he's the ace of spades on their least wanted. Ananias explains to God that this guy is bad news. By the way, if you ever find yourself explaining to God something, you've probably gone someplace you don't want to be. Nonetheless, Ananias persists. I know this guy and I know how much evil he has done. If faith is belief in action, then Saul's faith shows he believes we are a threat to be eradicated. He came here to drag 
the followers out of their homes in prison, beat and maybe kill them. Did you forget I'm one of those? You want me to walk into this house? You want me to go into the house where his friends are, friends of this terrorist? And God says, yes. God asked the prey to go to the hunter, the everyday citizen to go to the terrorist. And now for the actual miracle to me in this story, Ananias gets up and starts walking across town. He starts walking down this famous street that was for them Fifth Avenue. And everyone would have known and seen. Everyone would have been talking about these things that are going on. And Ananias takes step after step to the place he doesn't want to go. All the way over to the house full of people who believe it would be better off if he were dead. And Saul, in my mind, is like me laying in a bed in a dark place. And a voice calls out in the darkness. And the voice could have said, Mr. Saul, Saul of Tarsus, hey, you big jerk. Any of those things would have been understandable. But the voice calls out, Brother, Saul. When he gets to Saul, he says, Brother, Saul, this Jesus that you met sent me to heal you. We don't get to choose our family, do we? That's God's job. And Ananias had realized something. God had chosen Saul. He had chosen to show grace and mercy. And so, who is he now? But family. In the darkness, an enemy called him brother and prayed for him. In his moment of vulnerability, God sent one to him that had every reason to run and to refuse. That one walked into a lion's den filled with enemies to heal the one who hated him. When he wouldn't have wanted to, when it might cost him everything, Ananias followed and it changed Saul's life. He sees the whole world differently after learning that Easter was real. After Easter, Saul's prey calls him brother. The terrorist becomes family. We sang a song that said, I am who you say I am. Is that true? It's easy to say yes, but let me put it another way to you. Are they are who he says they are? We like to categorize people. We love to categorize people. We like to say this about different kinds of people. So I ask you this question because someone needs to teach it to me. Could someone please show me the category of people who aren't offered grace just as they are? Could someone please tell me where that line is? Not after they get it right. Not after they understand everything we think they should understand. But as they are, where they are. Can someone show me the group that excluded from that amount of grace? 
Show me the people who aren't invited to come in and be family. Because it doesn't seem to matter how dry a branch the unit got in. It doesn't matter how much they turned away and fell away and said they didn't even know him because Peter got in. It doesn't matter if they don't understand what the heck it means to really follow because those guys on the road to Emmaus couldn't give a right Sunday school answer about Jesus when questioned by Jesus himself. And they're still considered followers, worthy to be there with Jesus. It doesn't appear to even matter if they're terrorists who have previously been dead set on killing Christ followers. Saul still gets grace. The terrorist is baptized and repents after grace is given. He's healed and called brother before he ever takes an act. That God changed his life. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The terrorist starts preaching. He starts preaching Christ to others and it starts changing lives. And if you want to read a little bit more in the book of Acts, we aren't there next week, go ahead and keep seeing what happens when the terrorist finds a God who loves him so much that despite every broken thing about him, despite all the blasphemy, despite ending Stephen's life, would still choose to use him. See how much it changes that guy's life and how much it changes the lives of all he meets. After Easter... We, the church, don't choose our family. We said last week that the family unit that we're born into isn't the ultimate expression of the group of Christianity. No, 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 no. That's the church. And the church is open for all. Christ chooses to offer grace instead of condemnation. So many people have memorized John 3.16. We sometimes forget to memorize the verse after it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save it. You are the church. You are his image on this planet. And we are called to love our enemies. If last week was shocking that the eunuch would get in, this is the last straw. It doesn't matter how big an enemy. It doesn't matter if you're A, number one, coming to persecute the Christians. You're still offered the grace that was offered to all the rest of us. I don't care what you've done and what laws you've broken or how abusive you've been or how hateful or how mean or what you've said. Today, the gospel is offered for you just the same as it was to me. By the way, if you think those of us who end up preaching are the ones who got it all right, (laughs) you have not yet figured out what's going on in Easter. The ones of us standing up here, the ones who have learned exactly how broken we really are. And that's why I know that it's fine for you to come in too. If he'll use me, you're just fine. And so the terrorist starts preaching, and so the broken people start offering. And so today in this place, you are offered grace just as you are. And the church is given instructions and not a rebuke. 
to go out and find those who think they're your enemies because they're actually your mission. They're just members of the family who we need to go get because once they come in, they're brothers and sisters in Christ just as they are. Let's pray. God, in this place, if there's anyone who needs to know you, if there's anyone who needs to find grace, if there's anyone who needs to know that there's nothing they need to do to be good enough first, they don't clean themselves up, they're not looking to be better than they are, they just come as they are and find that that is fine to receive the grace of Christ. We pray that those people would have the guts to come down, talk to someone, to find someone after the service, but to come and get grace because it's been enough time living in the darkness. We pray that today in this place that we would be your light to the world, to those in dark places. That God, we pray that you would send us out this week with passion and with grace and mercy, that our religious zeal for doing good for God would mean loving our neighbors and even our enemies. And we ask this in your name, Christ Jesus. Amen.